Welcome to the Water Cooler podcast from the Menzies Research Centre. My name's Nick Cater, I'm Executive Director. Today we're joined by Brendan O'Neill, my old friend from the UK. Welcome, Brendan. Hey, Nick. It's, uh, I was trying to think when, when we first met, I, I couldn't put a year on it, but it probably at least 10 years ago, um, I'd, I'd spotted what you were writing in Britain <clears> and thought we must get some of that here in Australia. And we met up, I think it's in Pancras Station, didn't That's we? That's right. Uh, to have a Guinness. That's right, St. Pancras Station. That was the beginning of our long friendship. Yeah, it was terrific. And beginning, I think, of your writing in Australia, because then we, we, you know, I was at the, the Weekend Australian at the time, you started to write for that, and, and we introduced Frank Freedy as well, you, you know, our, our mutual friend. And uh, you've been a terrific contributor, I must say, to the debate here over that time. And um, thank you very much for that. Well, thank you, and it's my pleasure to do it. And I always say to people who, if they get angry about me always coming to Australia or writing in Australia, I say, blame Nick Cater. He's the man who started my long-standing love affair with this nation. (laughs) Terrific. Now, down to business. Australia. You, you, yeah. you like this place, don't you? I love Australia. I think it's one of the most fascinating countries in the world, both in terms of where it comes from, how it came into being, how it conceives of itself, how isolated it is, but also connected, mm. uh, and what impact that has on how people think, how politics works. Uh, almost everything I encounter in Australia I find, I find fascinating. I think it's a, it's a wonderful human experiment this nation uh, and actually one of the most valuable human experiments I think it's an incredible country yeah we talked about this a lot didn't we back in uh, I think it was 2014 when mm. you, when you were over for the Center for Independent Studies and I was working there at the time we, we did a bit of a, a mini project I recall on on the Enlightenment and how Australia yeah. was a product of the Enlightenment that's right and and we talked about the Endarkenment which I think was Bill Leakes the mm. great Bill Leakes phrase uh, yeah he did that and, beautiful cartoon didn't yeah he? that's right and so the the Enlightenment and the turn against it and so I think Australia is again fascinating from both of those pers- perspectives both from being a country off the Enlightenment which I think is pretty unique all other countries existed at some, most other countries that are now enlightened existed at some level prior to the Enlightenment, and therefore they went through some various birth pains in the process of becoming the countries they are now, whereas Australia is pretty unique on that front in coming... We, we didn't have a civil war, did we? We, we, this, we? There are only two continents in the world that haven't had a civil war. That's us and Antarctica. Antarctica right, yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty good going. It is an incredibly enlightened country. One of the things that's always irritated me about the image of Australia from overseas is the kind of blokish, Sheila you know, not particularly well-educated, the kind of convict descendancy. Now, uh, I'm not saying there's no truth in that. You know, larrikinism in many ways springs from that kind of quite working-class proletarian culture and sense of defiance and sense of dissent and 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 desire for independence, more importantly. Mm. There's a lot of that still running through Australia. But at the same time, it is an incredibly enlightened and open country. And I think that kind of depiction of it as this... Uh, closed off strange place where people men are sexist and everyone denies climate change and all that the caricature doesn't even remotely capture the enlightened complexity of the place no i mean it it, and and another way i think it differs from how it's covered overseas uh is you know we 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 are i think a much happier Mm. uh a much less burdened country than you sometimes think when you read things like the BBC or the yeah. Guardian. I mean, they they seem to always want to find something dark yeah. to say about the place. It's, it's, it's particularly the Guardian. I remember when the Guardian set up here a, couple, a few years ago, they set up Guardian Australia. I did a piece for The Spectator looking at all the things that The Guardian in Britain has said about Australia in recent years. And it was, you know, the majority of it was just demeaning stuff. Rampant sexism, unreconstructed men, um, the climate change denial, of course, which they think Australia is a hotbed of. Um, but, uh, you know, the the mistreatment, historical mistreatment of Aboriginal people, the fact that not enough people say sorry for the past and you need more and more of that. The, the, everything The Guardian in Britain had published about the Australia was really sniffy. So I wrote this piece just looking at why is The Guardian coming to Australia? It's basically coming as a new form of colonialism to come and re-educate the Aussie people and make them better, uh, you know, more guardianist types. So um, there is a caricature um, of this kind of tragic, sad strange nation but I do but the important thing to bear in mind is I do think that's a caricature that is only cleaved to by certain sections of society you know one of the points that is often made about 
you know, the British chattering classes are sometimes quite sniffy about Australia and its lack of culture as they see it. What they're often doing is projecting their own distaste for the British masses onto Australia because it's a safer way of attacking, you know, bogans and people, you know, these uh, working class people who dare to want huge flat screen TVs and live in nice houses. They often deflect their loathing for the people who live in their own country onto Australia because they see them as an even more caricatured version of ordinary yeah. Brits. Yeah. So, um, but well, that, that deflection is an interesting thing because mm. one thing you'd have noticed here is that Brexit mm. is a very hot issue, particularly uh, on the right, uh, and and support for Brexit is sort of I, I don't know I haven't taken a measure of it, but I'd say that it was by far the majority of say Liberal Party voters yeah. would be in favour of Brexit, and and I, I see that too as a sort of deflection because you know what happened in in Britain of course with Brexit was a sort of revolt against the expert class absolutely, and and people here of course get frustrated by conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom meaning things that can't be challenged they get sick of that too and I think Brexit for them is a way of playing out that feeling yeah. on a different field absolutely right I've I've been amazed at the response I've had here when I've mentioned Brexit in talks I did the 75th anniversary gala dinner for the IPA I did the speech there mentioned Brexit got a huge cheer every time I mentioned it uh, same in Sydney when I've met people particularly on the right who have just been fascinated by Brexit, want to talk about it all the time, think it's wonderful, as it is. Uh, no, that's absolutely right. I think Brexit has become a beacon to people around the world, in fact. That's one of the things I find most exciting about it, because it is, as you say, a, re a revolt of the people against the expert class, against the cult of bureaucracy, against the technocrats, and this idea that politics is best done by people with PhDs and who are super green and socially aware and racially aware and political correct and all those other things you're supposed to be these days i'm a bit over the experts i don't know about you i mean the, the thing about <laughs> being an expert is to be an expert you have to go along with expert opinion mm. which is always the conventional wisdom so by definition if you if you challenge you know the dominant line in any debate you can't be an expert and then yeah. you won't get <laughs> you you won't get grants to do your studies because we can't give it to people who are not experts and you, you won't get invited to business class flights yeah. around the world to great you know some conference in Miami because you're not an expert <laughs> you know if, if if you don't go along with the conventional line on anything you know be it Brexit be it uh, global warming the obesity epidemic so-called yep. you know then you, you you just you just have a rotten life don't you just push to the margins it's exactly right the you know when Michael Gove now infamously said people have had enough of experts he was really rounded upon by the Remainer side in the debate in Britain and by all sorts of people around the world who think expertise is the most important thing in politics. But you're absolutely right. There's so much conformism amongst this expert class. They actually have a very samey ideological moral view of the world, which they often disguise in terms of science and yeah. research. You know, the research shows. It's basically, it's very religious. You know, the, yeah, yeah. it's like our gospel. Well, they want to make it objective. Don't yeah. they? They, want, they want to say, this is an objective opinion. We have no vested yeah. interest. <laughs> in this of course but experts have got huge vested interest absolutely it's it's that search for um a scientific basis to their own moralistic and political worldview uh, and and that does two bad things firstly it's it, it's bad for politics because it becomes unchallengeable because if you challenge them you're called a denier or, mm. or um anti-expert or you know someone who's sinning against the science so it's bad for politics because it makes debate more difficult and it's bad for science because the more that people see science or research or academic research being used fairly explicitly to the end of justifying a political course of action the yeah. more they will become cynical about science which is a very important endeavor i can understand i've got some understanding for experts of why they're so reluctant to challenge their worldview because if they did that's basically their life over i mean if you yeah. become a, an expert in say you know breeding ants in central uh, africa you know then uh, and, and that's your thing right or your whole career's built on that your, your pay packet, your research grants, your reputation, uh, and somebody then comes along and says, "Well, look, you've got it completely wrong. Mm. You know, there are no, there are no ants in Central Africa. <laughs> you know, you, you you can't possibly. I mean, you, your life's over. So you yeah. can see why. You know, and 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 then you get this thing where you know business gets involved. You yeah. know, like like yeah. a, a classic one, of course, was the the panic against saturated fats in the in the sixties and seventies, and you know, it was an academic debate until Procter and Gamble 
decided, oh, we've got this stuff here called margarine, which we invented in World War II. It tastes disgusting. Nobody ever buys it. But what about if we say it's low cholesterol? <laughs> and then you've got a company with a vested interest in Absolutely. this, and the whole thing just goes bananas. It's, it's true. You know, and experts are very wary of being challenged because, as you say, everything falls apart if their area of expertise is called into question. This is why the expert class, in terms of the political, the so-called political experts, loathe Brexit so much because Brexit is such an is so openly a confrontation to their moral, political, and scientific authority, and 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 they know it is, and that's why they will do everything in their power to overturn it. But you know, one of the things that frustrates me whenever I raise the problem of um, you know, the expert class or this kind of new clerisy of clever people who supposedly ought to rule over the rest of us. People will always say, oh, you're a Philistine, you don't believe in science, you don't believe in progress. That's not the case at all. I love experts when it comes to fixing my iPhone mm. or if I need to have an operation. Mm. Uh, that's when I want an expert. I don't want the man in the street <laughs> to operate <laughs> on me. Um, so that's absolutely fine. Expertise plays a crucial part in a modern society. The problem is when expertise then becomes politicised and is used to determine the political course of a nation because that's not the role of experts and that is anti-democratic. And, and the argument that has been made by pretty much every single movement for democracy over the past 200 years is the, the collected wisdom of ordinary people is a far greater and usually more insightful force than the isolated expertise of bureaucrats. And it's so important to hold on to that argument. Now, that doesn't mean people always get it right. People will vote for politicians we don't like, and it will go horribly wrong, and everyone will regret it. But what it means is that turning to ordinary people and encouraging them to think seriously about the issues of the day, and then tapping into their collective wisdom of how they experience society, that is always preferable yeah. to trusting handfuls of people to say where we should go next. Yeah, because it self-corrects, doesn't it? Yeah. That's, that's the beauty of it, whereas yeah. expert opinion doesn't self-correct. That's right. Absolutely. And it's uh, and of course, one of the problems with removing politics further and further away from the say so and the control of ordinary people is that then discourages public debate. And over time, politics does become a bit more hollow, a bit more empty, a bit lacking in substance because there's not as much discussion publicly as there ought to be. So it has a really bad knock on effect. The more that you make politics the uh, the regime of the experts so i think um the more that we can encourage ordinary people to take serious responsibility for the societies they live in the better off we will be no here here to that and we, we're all for brexit here and uh, we'd be leaving europe too if we could but we never joined so <laughs> <laughs> perhaps we should have done just so we could leave <laughs> So joining me today on Water Cooler, my old friend Brendan O'Neill. Brendan, George Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's new book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Mm. Very good book. Uh, and it raises this whole culture of safetyism. Mm. Of course, your friend and mine, Frank Faridi, has been writing about this for a long time. wrote yeah. a very good book on this what, a couple of years back. But, yeah. uh, and they're talking about the same thing in many ways, except, uh, I guess, from different perspectives. Frank is a sociologist. Uh, Lukianoff and, and haters, uh, psych psychologists, so social psychologists, slightly different perspective. But the, the, the phenomena is the same, isn't it? Safetyism. Yeah. One of the great problems of our time, I think, is safetyism, which I think is a good word to describe this stuff, which is the way in which the young in particular are protected from all sorts of risky potentially dangerous experiences or even just from social conflict, playground conflict, um, the usual conflict of childhood that we all remember. They're increasingly protected from those experiences. They're increasingly looked after in a way that is often described as molly coddling. Mm. They're not allowed out as much as they used to be. When they're teenagers, they're far less likely to have Saturday jobs than they used to be likely to have. Uh, they have sex later. They start drinking later. All this, it's like adolescence has been dragged out on and on and on until the yeah. 20s and the, you know and, and we often make fun of these kids and call you know someone in Britain called it the absolutely fabulous generation so it's like ab fab yeah. where the mother is the tearaway and the child is the boring square girl um, but it's but what's important about it I think is that if the more safetyism we have the less opportunity kids have to discover the raw materials of adulthood which is the ability to deal with tension the ability to resolve conflict uh the ability to have a space in which you can practice your autonomy 
Mm. And if they don't have that, what you end up with is kids getting to the ages of 18 and 19, which used to be the age at which they would go off to war or start having children, certainly having jobs, mm. and they are not remotely prepared for adult life. So we're storing up a, a new generation that is not going to be ready for the responsibility of running society. And it's come upon us even even without us noticing, really. Mm. But I think anybody, uh, almost of any age, actually, if they think back to their own childhood, it would have been a freer, less less regulated, less controlled uh, experience of play and yeah. going out with kids and playing in the garden uh, than it is for today's kids. So I th- it's a real, it's a real yeah. thing. There's no doubt about it. One thing height does is refer to uh, statistics that show that, that it's actually, you know, statistically true that that in America at least the streets are safer. You're less likely mm. to have children abducted by by strangers. That's always a very remote thing anyway. You know, when kids are abducted, it's, it's usually by a family member. But nonetheless, you know, the culture's gone the opposite way. People have moved that way. That's right. I, I was thinking recently that, you know, people often say that these days kids aren't allowed out. When I was a kid, we weren't allowed in. I remember <laughs> in the summer holidays, um, there were six of us in our family, six boys, and my mum would kick us out of the house in the morning and it was made very clear that we were not welcome back until lunchtime or for, or for tea. And of course, we got into scrapes and bad things happened. I remember once some bloke said... Uh, come to my house and look at my guns and all six of us traipsed to this dodgy man's house to look at his collection of air rifles now that's not an advisable thing for young children to do but all of that stuff does Did he let you shoot it that's the thing. <laughs> no he was just wanted to show him off so it was a shame we didn't get to use them even uh but all of that stuff does is character building I mean, I I remember these things incredibly clearly and you remember them clearly for a reason because they are moments through which you start to engage your brain in a different way. Yeah, I mean, air rifles reminds me of a good mate I had. I still keep in touch with him, Michael Potter, and uh, we spent much of our childhood in his large garden firing his dad's air rifles at, at pigeons <laughs> or, or, or get, get, getting on this old motorbike he had and just hearing around the yeah. garden with no helmet at the age no. of 12, you know. <laughs> and, it's, and it's so important that people do that. You know, I, I was telling a bunch of students recently the story of when... I found it very difficult to learn how to swim and my parents and the swimming teacher were incredibly frustrated with me. So they did that thing, which was actually quite common back then. They threw me in the deep end of the pool um, without warning. Um, with my parents' agreement, it should be said, the teacher just said, come up here, I want to show you something. <laughs> Next thing, he literally picked me up, threw me into the deep end and I thought I was going to die. Mm. Of course, I didn't die. I managed to make my way to the edge of the pool. That kind of thing was fairly common. Yeah. Um, and... These days it would be called abuse, but it wasn't at all. But, you know, I think we sometimes underestimate the consequences of corroding adult authority and failing to discipline or socialise children. I think um, a lot of people in Australia have been asking me about the crime epidemic in London, where we have a pretty serious crime problem among youths in particular, stabbings, acid attacks, gangs and so on. I think stuff like that in London right now is actually a byproduct of a society that has given up on socialising, disciplining or um, controlling mm. uh, children um, in, a, in a way that is both making clear to them who's in charge of society, i.e. adults, while at the same time allowing them to go out and experiment for themselves and discover what it means to become an adult. Society doesn't do either of those things anymore. And what you end up with is kids who are either tearaways doing dodgy things because they know they'll never be told off or they're millennials on campus who literally fall down weeping when someone turns up who has a different opinion yeah and that's terrible yeah we've talked a lot about about its effect on campus and the safe spaces and so 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 on but i might just explore another another couple of consequences of safetyism Mm. uh one political and and one medical Uh, you might have seen that state election here in Victoria oh, yeah. last yeah. week. Daniel Andrews, Victorian Premier, won, won a very convincing victory uh, against expectations. I mean, we I think most people expected him to win, but not by that margin. It certainly caught the Liberal Party by surprise. Uh, and so I've gone back and started a look at 
some of the things he, he did and put forward that, that appeared so popular. And one was level crossings. Like he, he had a program of getting rid of level crossings in your suburb. So he put a, a, a bridge in or mm. an underpass or mm. something so that nobody had to go across a level crossing. Uh, a, a small but important mm. sort of improvement of daily life. But the rhetoric he used around that was all about safety. It was right, about keeping right. your neighbourhood safe from, and keeping your kids safe, you know, uh, and it's a good thing, I guess. You don't want your kid to be mowed yeah. down by a train, do you? Not, <laughs> not most days, anyway. But I, I, I did, I, I did think that was clever, and I, I think mm. uh, clever in one way. But you know, because I'm so uncertain about this safety culture, I, I don't yeah. really like the idea that politicians are playing it up. But I guess that's what they have to do. Yeah, I do think politicians tap into the desire for safety, and in the process, they can kind of worsen it and exacerbate it because then you create a situation where um some people expect from their politicians safety to be kept safe to be looked after um now it's partly the role of politicians to look after you society should be a physically safe place there shouldn't be huge holes in the street and and unnecessary dangers but at the same time if you turn society into a completely safe space particularly an intellectually safe space that's the real problem um then that is going to definitely hamper everyday social interaction and the creation of future generations who might be capable of engaging with the world but you know uh, on campuses in britain there's always these interesting stories about the 18 year olds who turn up there who just aren't very good at everyday life um you know firstly they're not very good at the practicalities of everyday life like washing up and cleaning their clothes and so on uh, but but even more importantly they're not very good at the practicalities of of it coping with everyday life, coping with being on their own, so away from the parental home, coping with exams and so on. So what you have is this new industry on campuses, and this is going on across the Western world, where campuses now encourage students to see themselves as vulnerable to mental ill health and needing the therapeutic services of the university to guide them through you know, what were seen as fairly standard challenges in the past, mm. like exam stress and so on. And so even when they get to university, the break isn't made. Universities don't say to them, right, snap out of it. We know your parents looked after you too much, but now you're adults, get on with life. Instead, the parenting continues, but it's done by someone else. Yeah, and you get this extension of, of the word violence, don't you, from violence being a physical thing to vi- violence being something you can do with words. Yeah, And then I think you get into very nasty territory and you start this you know anti-bullying culture which which I, I mean I don't like bullies but I don't like the anti-bullying culture either because Absolutely. it can be extended just to you know to stop anybody doing anything that's challenging to anyone that's right I, I've, I've done I do speeches in schools in in Britain sometimes and one of the things that I've said in a couple of schools and it's been incredibly unpopular is that I think anti-bullying initiatives are a problem because what they do is that they have this ever-expanding definition of bullying. So it's no longer it's no longer the, that one kid who's getting picked on for three or four months by another gang, which where there does absolutely have to be teacher intervention. But it's anything. It's just if you fall out with your friends or you have a scuffle in the playground or someone gives you a dirty look. Every single normal part of childhood is now redefined as bullying. And then it's collapsed into... Uh, this process that has to be negotiated by the adults, teachers and headmasters and so on. So kids are deprived of the opportunity to experience conflict. And every adult knows that that's a central part of childhood. Everyone remembers the fights they got into. Everyone remembers the fallings out they had. Everyone remembers the arguments they had. Everyone remembers the conversations that then flow from all of that, where you talk to your other friends, what shall I do? How shall I handle this? That is so central to making the transgression around the ages between you know the ages of 13 and 18 when you start thinking oh, I'm not really a child am I but I'm not an adult either that's such an important period of a human being's life and if we colonize that with all this expert advice and therapeutic intervention and safetyism then that process is not going to happen mm. and kids will suffer as a result and and that moves on I think to to the other consequence which we've been thinking about here and that is um, obesity you know so we have this obesity crisis now and there's been a uh, a long debate here as to whether we should follow Britain's failed policy of a sugar tax you know yeah. which it's not making it's not making any difference at all uh, you know there's the, the evidence is in now that, that, that it's not changing behavior uh, but you know there's still the pressure on to have it here the greens are calling for it labor is wavering uh, but you know 
you're looking at a single cause there. Sure, sure. Sugar, uh, you know, is is calorie dense, and uh, if you have if you have too much sugary drink, you, you know, it may well make you obese, but it may not because mm. you know, the, the the most the heaviest consumption of sugary soft drinks in in Europe is in Holland amongst kids. The lowest is in Greece, but guess what? Dutch kids are the thinnest and yeah. Greek kids are the biggest <laughs> because of exercise, because yes, they cycle right. to school. That's right. So is this not tied up with what we were talking about earlier? You know, uh, it's screen time and, and you, yeah. know, you, used, you used to be made to play outdoors. Nowadays, kids are left with, with, with screens indoors. Yeah. Uh, that seems to me to be a much, much more direct connection if you want a, if you want a single causal effect. And of course, there's never one single effect. But yeah. if you're looking for it, you'd say, that's it, isn't it? That's Absolutely. why kids are getting beefier fatter yeah, yeah i think that's right uh you know when i look at photos of me and my friends and my brothers when we were kids i always think god we were thin and we were well-fed kids we ate mm. proper proper dinners irish dinners potato and meat every night but we were thin kids because we were constantly active and constantly exhausted as a consequence at the end of the day that doesn't happen with a lot of kids now a lot of kids now it depending on what part of the world you're in but they will sit down a lot um, so I think that kind of uh, s- static lifestyle is, comp- is is potentially very unhealthy. But also, in addition to that, I do think a lot of parents find it hard to say no these days because parental authority has been so corroded. The whole idea that parents um, ought to discipline or, or even shout out, you know, far less ever clip around the ear their children that's entirely being called into question. Yeah. Uh, and I think the, the, the corrosion of adult authority actually takes place often in in the realm of the family the sovereignty of the family is continually called into question by political initiatives that are offering constant advice and hectoring parents in britain we have parenting classes Mm. for bad parents who need to go through six months of re-education all of that just chips away at parents sense that they are they are the adults in this relationship and that they should occasionally say to their kids no you're not having this shut the hell up yes. so uh, those things combined i think the kind of the safetyism that means kids no longer go out and run around or cycle for hours on end plus parents feeling their authority called into question is definitely a bigger contributor to the obesity issue brendan you've been a, a critic of defamation laws in the way they're used to shut down free speech. I've had a bit of an experience yes. of that this year, as you know. Uh, and uh, I have to say, having been at the rough end of one of these cases, the defendant, you're exactly right. I mean, it does it does uh, stop you speaking out. Yeah. They are dreadful laws, I think. And I think they are very much designed to assist powerful people who don't want to hear certain critical viewpoints of what they do or how they behave or what they say and so on. Um, and so that's that's largely what they are designed to do. They are designed to be tools of the wealthy or the powerful to in order that they can um, clamp down on dissent or criticism or sometimes on people saying things about them that are wrong. That does happen. But, you know, uh, uh, my view is that defamation laws really don't have any place in 21st century society. Now, when you say that, everyone says, oh, should people be able to call you a paedophile and all this kind of stuff? I'm not encouraging people to lie about anyone, but we do have to have the breathing space for making mistakes, and we do have to have the breathing space for being super critical of all sorts of institutions. You know, there was an incredibly important Supreme Court case in the US in 1964, uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, Uh, and this was where um, uh, an Alabama police chief had sued the New York Times because they said that he had arrested Martin Luther King seven times but in fact it was only four times so they made a mistake they made a factual error he sued them and he won then they took him to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court issued this ruling called New York Times versus Sullivan which everyone should read it's one of the greatest ever defenses of freedom of speech and it makes the point that um, defamation laws are very often a menace to freedom of speech Uh, And it has this very clear point that part of being engaged in public life, as police officers are and politicians are and and corporations are, is that you will be subjected to stinging criticism and wrongful criticism and people saying things about you that are exaggerated or uh, really strong worded and so on. And it says that's life. 
and you have to put up with that. Um, and so it's it's the it was the ruling through which America's defamation laws were severely curtailed. So in America, it's much more difficult to sue someone for defamation than it is in Britain or Australia. So uh, uh, people in Australia and Britain, where we have very problematic defamation laws, I always say to them, read this ruling, and you'll get a sense of why our laws are problematic. It, it is a, a horrible thing. And I think increasingly, you know, in this days of people becoming independent journalists, you know, writing on blogs and so forth, it becomes a real issue because it's so easy for somebody with money just to throw a writ at them and just shut them down. Absolutely. Uh, the thing about defamation laws is that they have a, a, a terribly insidious impact on society, even when they're not being used. So th- their very existence has a chilling effect on media discussion and open discussion. Because, and this is particularly the case in Britain, um, where a lot of editors will say, well, we shouldn't publish that because there'll be a defamation act. So they preemptively censor themselves in response to the fact that there exist these laws that can be used by usually very wealthy people to shut them up. So it chills um, media discussion in particular simply through the very existence of these laws. And then, of course, when they're used, uh, they have a devastating impact on people's lives very often. It sucks up a huge amount of their time. It brings them an enormous amount of stress often costs them a lot of money if they lose. People's lives can be ruined by these laws f- simply because they said something. I think it's, it's entirely onerous and, and, and almost medieval. Um, and I do think, um, you know, people say, well, what's your solution if someone's out there lying about someone? I always think the solution has to be more speech. And this is another point that's made in New York Times versus Sullivan. They, they quote that great line, uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. So, so they preempt that question. What does a politician do, for example, or, or a corporate boss, if someone is out there uh, spreading misinformation? They say, well, speak up. You are people who have platforms, usually bigger than the people who are causing you annoyance. And you should make that clear. And now, that's not perfect either. Because people are, st- and people on Twitter say things about me all the time that aren't true. People will say you're a fascist if you support Brexit, or they will say you're homophobic if you raise criticisms of same-sex marriage. People say things about me all the time which are categorically untrue yeah. and defamatory. But in in a, in a world of free speech, they, they end up looking like the idiots. They because, end up, yeah. That's you know, and that's and that's I think the thing we've got to trust. We have to trust that. In a world that we, where we want things to be open and free and where we trust ordinary people to make up their minds themselves, we have to trust that those people who use, who, who use defamation uh, against people they don't like, that they will be held to account. But the bigger problem, you know, so there's that problem where people who are, who, who are being purposefully, maliciously defamatory, even there I don't think there should be censorship. But the far bigger problem, which touches on people like you, who was not being maliciously defamatory at all, is that it has an impact on really important, responsible public discussion and the ability even to ask questions or raise problems or suggest that things happened in a different way than we're being told they happened. That is so central to a public life that anything that chills it has got to be a bad thing. And it protects the rich and powerful. It, it's mm, not a yeah. law. It, it's, it, it's just not possible for... Uh, a poor person yeah. to use this law against a rich person because That's right. they will be crushed at the first attempt, at the first hurdle. Absolutely right. And the, it, I mean, the sums in this are just horrendous. Yeah, right? it's it's a, in Britain for for a long time it's been called a rich man's law. Uh, London is is referred to as a town called Sue because. Um, Saudi oligarchs and Russian oligarchs and and sometimes American celebrities, because they find it difficult to sue in their own countries, they will often think, oh, has this libel been repeated in a British publication? Therefore, I'll sue in London because our laws have traditionally been so favourable to the wealthy and unfavourable to people publishing critical material. Um, So they're a complete menace to freedom of speech. Well, it brings to mind even the the history of your own publication, Mm -hmm. Spiked. I mean, that that Spiked came out of the ashes of of a journal that had been destroyed by defamation, right? Yeah, that's right. And and a very notorious case, because this was a case of one media institution, ITN, suing another, LM magazine, Living Marxism magazine. Pretty unprecedented, even in a country as um, beholden to libel laws as as Britain is. Uh, So that was a pretty notorious case. Um, 
I think media outlets should never sue media outlets because the media is primarily the victim of defamation law. So that was an incredibly stupid thing to do, in my view. I won't get into the ins and outs of the case itself because it's still things you can't talk no, openly about. No, this. this is if you lose a libel case, as we did, and as 80% of people who get sued in Britain do because they are weighted towards the person doing the suing, um, you, you can't talk about this stuff. It's unsayable. Um, so it's incredibly chilling and it, it clamps down on discussion. Of course, another notorious case around the same time as us, when, when ITM was suing us, David Irvin, the, the Holocaust denier, was suing uh, Deborah Lipstadt because she wrote a book about Holocaust denial, the scourge of Holocaust denial, in which, in which she referenced his various denials of the Holocaust. That was a really interesting case because he lost and the judge said to him, you've been exposed as a racist and, and an anti-Semite. And that's the benefit of freedom of speech. Mm. Uh, and, and that was an important case because rarely the person doing the suing, the wealthy person doing the suing, lost. Deborah Lipstadt was defended. And it, it was a very good snapshot of why the right of people like Deborah Lipstadt or Nick Cato or anyone else to ask pressing questions of powerful, influential people is so important. We have to do everything we can to defend it. Yeah. So here's my New Year resolution on behalf of... Uh, good people who believe in free speech. Let's make defamation law reform top of the agenda for 2019. Absolutely. You're listening to Watercooler Podcast, and it's great to have Brendan O'Neill here. Brendan, the editor of Spiked Online. I'm sure most of our our, uh, our, our readers, our listeners, know Spiked Online, but in case you don't, it, it, it's a must-read Spiked online uh, from the UK. I, I make the occasional contribution, yes. but you make many more. You reminded us just when we were on the last topic that its previous existence was as living Marxism, yeah. which <laughs> some People might find chuckle. strange. Yeah. I mean, and it goes to, I think, something we've discussed before, that we find it increasingly difficult to sort of... We use we both use the phrases left and right, of course, mm -hmm. as shorthand, but it, it's increasingly hard to see in this world of disruptive politics where that old-fashioned left-right divide comes I, I agree I think it's increasingly meaningless and I think new divides are rising up which are much more interesting I think one of the key divides now is freedom versus authority which is not necessarily new in fact John Stuart Mill in On Liberty makes the point that a, a very important divide in society is between those who favour freedom and those who favour authority I think that's still incredibly important um, I think the, a, a really fascinating divide at the moment is between those who believe in the nation state and what the nation state embodies, i.e. popular democracy, and those who prefer the more supposedly cosmopolitan globalist route of doing politics in largely unaccountable institutions like the United Nations or the European Union or the IMF or whatever else it might be. That tension has really boiled up to the surface over the past few couple of years through Brexit, through the revolts in France, which I think are absolutely fascinating and stirring and, and brilliant in many ways. Um, and in, even in the vote for Trump, which I think is less positive, I think Trump, I'm not a fan of Trump, but even there, that divide between people who, you know, it's what it's David Goodhart's um, somewheres and anywheres. Mm. And I think that is, that is a very, that is a useful way to understand some of the tensions now. And, and, and it's a more useful way than calling people left or right. Although I'm like you, I still use that terminology while at the same time thinking it's not quite right. No. Identity politics um, is, is really come to the fore. It's the way we, we understand how people are reacting in groups and reinforcing hmm. that group identity. Uh, I think we, you know, we, we tend to think or we tend to portray identity politics as being something of the left, you know, something that comes from the progressive movement, where it's very strong, uh, it's been growing yeah. for a long time, yeah. and now is it, it almost completely defines everything they think about. You know, it's not what you yeah. say; it's who are you? You yeah. know, which 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 group do you identify with, and where does that put you in the pecking order? Um, it's a very destructive thing, as I think we all agree, in, in terms of civic debate, and it it it. it pits us against them and, and, and it sets up good people versus bad people because the world's not like that yeah. as as, uh, as uh, Jonathan Haidt explains in, in his book but I, I've been increasingly concerned that this is a phenomenon that's becoming stronger 
on on the conservative side of politics too that we we hang on to our totems you know yeah. you, you need to be uh, you need to be against the paris agreement if you're going to be a true conservative mm. yeah we're looking for those simple markers and if you're not you know, if you don't obey that marker, then you can't possibly be one of us. Do you, yeah. do you see that happening? I, I was thinking about this recently. I was thinking about where does identity politics come from? And I think it's always had a right-wing element to it and, and a reactionary right-wing element. So I think uh, one of the areas that identity politics come from is really the reaction against the Enlightenment. Because the Enlightenment is that incredibly important moment where philosophers and others start to, to talk about man this idea of a universal man, this idea that, that there is this, you know, they didn't say woman in those days or even humankind, it was always man. The idea of a, a, of the universal man who had the shared capacity for reason, the shared capacity to enjoy moral autonomy. And that was an incredibly progressive idea, a great breakthrough. Uh, and one of the reactionary fightbacks against that idea, or the romantic fightbacks as well, was the idea that, well, is there really such thing as a man? You know, there's black men and white men and mm. Italian men and French <laughs> men, but we're all really different. So uh, one of the important arguments made by reactionaries who were uncomfortable with the Enlightenment because it was an incredibly radical moment was precisely to fall back on identitarianism. Mm. And so it, 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 I always see it as something that emerges in that reactionary moment. So I'm always so colossally disappointed when the left now embraces it, which over the past 40 or 50 years it has, to the extent that it is now the central feature of left-wing politics. Yeah. But the, in relation to the contemporary right, the thing I find most worrying about the Trumpian right in particular is that in many ways they are now a mirror image of left identitarianism. Mm. So if you look, Trump often tries to tap into a kind of white victim complex in a kind of mirror image of the kind of the black victim complex or the women victim complex. Yeah, it's quite conscious, I think. It, it is conscious. And mm. and so they, they play the same victim card very often. Um, they, they play the same censorious card sometimes too. You know, a, a lot of right-wing identitarians are not very strong defenders of freedom of speech. Um, so I'm worried about the way in which we now have basically the culture wars are increasingly becoming a clash between two different sets of identitarianism. I think the role of those of us who want to come in at the culture wars in a way that says, let's keep defending freedom, let's keep defending the idea of progress, let's keep defending the idea of growth, is that we've got to take a step back from this identitarian spat and start to assert some more serious, historic, important values. Yeah, well, just for just for the benefit of civic debate, we need to yeah. do that because yeah. you end up, you know, the, the position you've got in France at the moment is a sort of extreme yeah. vision of where you end up. You know, yeah. yellow vests versus the rest. Uh, it, it's it it it, it, it <laughs> I, I don't see any future in in marking ourselves against our cultural and political enemies by clinging to a simple totem like that. No. In fact, quite the opposite. It just ends in conflict. You just end, you have this spiral of of disagreement that yeah. ends up with, you know, it's like the Israelis and the Palestinians. Yeah. Uh, and what I think the Yellow Vest is a very good example of what happens when you ignore people for a long period. This is a, it's a revolt of the ignored. We can all understand it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And but, then but what in happens, terms of actually mending a, yeah. a, a, or fixing an issue in a society, it's, the and worst it, there is. It could potentially make things worse. Yeah. Um, uh, and and the intervention of other political forces who want to use that revolt, that understandable revolt, to pursue other ends becomes a problem. And the whole thing becomes a, a mess. Um, I think... But what's interesting about... The reason I'm optimistic about the current period is because I do think some of these populist revolts that are taking place, some of which are good, some of which are brilliant, like Brexit. It's very clean. Brexit's very clean. It wasn't a vote for any party or any ideology it was a vote for an idea mm. which is that democracy is a good thing so it's it's a clean it's the cleanest of the populist revolts um then some are pretty good like i think the rise of um new parties in europe is shaking up politics in a very important way some are some of them are less good yeah you know, i don't like the fact trump's in the white house for example that's not my preferred outcome although probably better than hillary being <laughs> in there not very good choices but the, but the point about all this populist rebellion is that i do think it's people saying um the old politics wasn't working and there's got to be something that's better and more interesting it is a cry for change 
The danger, of course, this is the real danger, is that it's a cry for change in an era in which identitarianism is increasingly the only game in town. So yeah. that does mean some of the populist revolts are being bent towards the identitarian outlook. That's particularly what's happening with Trumpism. Mm. So a lot of people in the US think that Trumpism is a reaction against political correctness, and I think there's an element of truth in that. But then because the parameters of political thinking are so narrow now, it ends up becoming just another form of political correctness, a kind of or, or, or identity politics. So that's the danger. And I think one of the things we have to do, as well as looking at these populist revolts and explaining where they come from, is expanding political language, expanding the parameters of political thought so that yeah. they take on a more positive form. You know, identity is important, right? I mean, as David Goodhart says in some, some ways and any, anywhere, you need to identify, you need a place. But I think what's changed is is the identity one used to feel that a politician could could um, could build upon was an identity with one's country. So you yes. voted f- yeah. for a party that yeah. you thought would act in the national interest. Yeah. You very very rarely hear that talked about now. It's the interest of minor mm. subgroups, isn't yeah. it? And and it's very hard to go to an election with a policy that will definitely be hard on some people but is in the national interest now because you get this sort of, well, you know, what about me? What about me? Exactly. I think that is incredibly an incredibly important point because we live in an era in which every identity is celebrated except the national one. Mm. So you can be, you can have a trans identity, you can have a gender fluid identity, you can have a racial identity, you can have all sorts of identities and you'll get a round of applause on that basis alone. But if you say, well, my identity is I'm English, or I'm British, or I'm, I'm Australian, and I love the Australian flag, and I'm going to put it outside my house, that's a problem. So uh, it's really strange. That, and, and the reason that there is this hostility towards the national identity at the same time as there is this kind of almost slavish celebration of all other identities is because, of course, the national identity threatens identity politics. Because what the national identity says is... Um, well, maybe we're not all different. Maybe race isn't that important. Maybe the fact that you're a woman rather than a man isn't the most important thing in your life. Maybe the fact that you're trans and you're going through a transition to from one sex to another, maybe that isn't the be-all and end-all. Maybe that's not actually um, that important for the rest of us. No. Maybe what's more important is the idea that we live in a nation, we live in a democracy, and we are equal citizens in the public sphere regardless of our racial or historical differences. And maybe we should come together on that basis and have public discussions and public disagreements. So national identity is a an explicit confrontation of identity politics more broadly. And that's why that is the most despised identity, in fact, probably the only despised identity among the chattering classes today. I find that fascinating. Yeah, we need to live in a world in which, you know, one's race or religion or... Or, or gender is, is the least important yeah. thing about you. The and least I, important I, I, thing. I honestly think we're moving much more towards that kind of world than we did. Here's the paradox, right? I yeah. mean, um, when, when I was, um, you know, I remember the first time I saw two men embracing, and I would have been 17 or 18, and it seemed like a, quite a strange, unusual thing at the time. It wasn't, you know, the British, British humour at that time yeah. was full of all this, what I now listen to and think, oh, I know what they were getting at now, all yeah. this innuendo, but it couldn't be talked about openly, and that's in my lifetime. It, that's changed. It's certainly changed too with gender um, in terms of, you know, it, I mean, that, what the sort of what women's liberation as we used to call it but the idea that women should should have equal rights yeah. as men is something that goes back a long time robert menzies was talking about it in world war Two, and you know many people are aware that the role of women needed to change all those things have changed and and um you know i constantly um there was an instant where where um an abc presenter uh, complained about being racially abused on a bus uh, and I thought at the time I thought that's strange. I didn't know he was black. And uh, then when I uh, when I when I saw a picture of him, I thought, oh yes, he is. But like I yeah. knew this guy, and it was just like the least relevant yeah. thing. And my kids, you know, sort of a generation further on, they hardly ever think about it. And yet but, we're constantly being told that this is so important. Well, that, I think that's that's the point. And you know, 
one of the things that the politically correct and the identitarians always say is that they want us to be racially aware. Racial awareness is this great modern project. You have to be aware of other people's races and engage with them on that level. You know, as it, there's there's this ritual of racial announcement. As a white man, you can't do this. Or as a black man, I think this. Or as a Muslim woman, this is my life experience. That kind of ritualistic declaration of your racial or religious origins. Um, and if you think back to 50 or 60 years ago, a progressive person, a good person, a decent person would have refused to be racially aware. Mm. That was the good thing to do, to refuse to engage in racial awareness and to not think racially. So identity politics has has, has rehabilitated the, the racial imagination. Uh, and I, I find that incredibly worrying. You're right that people need identities. You know, life's hard enough as it is without being unanchored. And so people do want an identity in life. Um, the difficulty is that people used to try to derive their sense of identity from uh, what they did or from where they came from, the national identity or a working identity. You know, I'm a shoemaker. I'm a British shoemaker. That's what I am. And I'm pretty sure about that. And I'm pretty happy about it. Now, increasingly, people derive their identity through what they are. I was born this way and that's what I am. It's incredibly fatalistic. It's, it is, it's, isn't it? It's, there's it's, no sense that you can get out of that. There's no yes. sense that you can get out of it and there's no sense that it's, it's, um, it's something you've achieved. It's, mm. it's, it's something that is... Completely disempowering. Yeah, mm. very disempowering. So I'm worried about the shift of identity away from something that you define for yourself or which comes from a sense of place, which were very solid identities. And you could tell that because people said, I am. Now what you have is these identities which are racial or sexual or gender-based and they're very weak as a consequence. So now the great phrase is not I am, it's I identify as. Yeah. It's a much more cagey phrase, it's much more uncertain, you know, I think I'm this thing but I'm not really sure. Or in, in the gender fluidity situation you can be one thing one day and another thing the next. So. These are changeable, weak identities. And I think that's one of the reasons there's a culture of intolerance around identity politics, because any challenge to these identities, any challenge that says, look, maybe that's not the most important thing about you, maybe you should think about a bigger, more important identity, is seen as an attack on their entire sense of being. Uh, and they know that the identity is weak, and therefore they push back with censorship and how dare you say this, and you're transphobic or you're homophobic. So it gives rise to the worst of all worlds, where on the one hand, people are going around defining themselves by accidents of birth. On the other hand, there's this new creeping culture of censorship that tries to stymie any discussion about identity politics. So the whole thing is a, is a bit of a problematic racket, which I think deserves questioning. Terrific, Brendan. What's your plans for 2019? My plans for 2019 <laughs> are to make Brexit happen. <laughs> That's my overarching plan because it's, it's looking increasingly possible that it won't. And it is, I think, a beacon to people around the world who want more democracy and progressive thought and freedom of speech. So making Brexit happen, continuing to publish Spiked and to wind up all the right people. And coming back to Australia. And hopefully coming back to Australia. You're always I think welcome. that's going to happen. You're always welcome here, Brendan. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Brendan.